I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week's guest is Rima. She has Mayor Rukatansky Kuster. God. Mayor Rukatansky. All right, here we go. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Rima. She has Meyer Rokitansky Kuster Hauser syndrome. Let's talk about it. Um, all right. Well, if we're good to get into it, let's get into it. Uh Guys, we're joined by our new friend Rima, all the way from Chicago, Illinois. Six oh six five two. Yeah, we just had a little, we just had a little uh, for any of our Canadian listeners, they'll probably know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, but Scruff McGruff, uh, the <laughs> detective dog from Chicago. Um, but uh, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. So we're gonna take that, we're gonna bury it, and we're not gonna talk about it again. Uh Rima, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to chat with you because. Uh, this is one of the moments in the podcast where, you know, we've been doing this for almost a decade. We've heard of many, many illnesses, disorders, diseases, things that people have been struggling with. And today we're going to dive into one that I have never heard of before. And to be quite honest with you, I'm going to give it a shot here. I don't have much faith in my ability to say it correctly. I'm going to give it a shot. Mayor Rokitansky Kuster Hauser syndrome. You got it. I'm impressed. Wow, really? <laughs> Let's go. Wait, wait, can you? I think Rokitansky was probably the one you were not sure about, I'm assuming. Uh, Rokitansky. Okay, now it's just getting Fuck. Rima, can you say it in a way that like a person who has it and knows about it would say it? I would say Meyer Rokitansky Kuster Hauser syndrome. Also known as MRKH. MRKH, and we'll say that from here on out. Love uh, acronyms. <laughs> but uh, Rima, uh, please, first of all, introduce yourself um, uh, to our to the three of us and to our listeners and uh, and give us a little insight. What what is MRKH? What are we about to dive into here? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Rima, and like you said, I'm from Chicago. And I was born with MRKH, Meyer-Rokitansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome. But aside from that, um, I am a, a coach, an MRKH coach. And so I help people navigate the emotional side of accepting the condition because to me, there are two paths. And in addition to, so that's my passion. And then on the side, I'm an avid cyclist, uh, still a Girl Scout, and really active in the Lithuanian community. Right. We were talking about your uh, your last name, which is uh, Zagaitis, and uh, and we were we were all trying to have a guess at where that uh, where that name comes from. And we all got it wrong. Lithuanian, love it. <laughs> um, uh, still a Girl Scout. What? Uh, I got a question. 
Uh, is there an age yeah, limit? Is there an to age limit to Girl to Scouts? Because I mean, we asked you how old you were earlier, and you told us you were thirty three, and um, and so you know that's that's great. But I feel like a, a Girl Scout. It, it, that's kind of an old Girl Scout. How does that work? You could be a Girl Scout forever. It's sort oh. of a it's a lifestyle. It's a vibe. Yeah. So my mom is still a Girl Scout. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, yeah. Even my still- grandparents were were Scouts until oh, the nice. end. So you can still be active. Cool. Do you do you go to door door to door selling those amazing cookies? We actually didn't. So I'm a Lithuanian Girl Scout, and that was not our fundraising approach. So yeah, that's part of it's it's like a part of the Lithu- Lithuanian uh, military. You guys are you guys go hard. Uh, Lithuanian Girl Scouts go. Is real it like hard. do you do something like more like <laughs> you sell like borscht door to door or something like that? <laughs> and dumplings. <laughs> is borscht a Lithuanian thing? I mean, I guess I it's a regional buy that. thing. <laughs> yeah. Borscht is that whole region. We yeah. don't have our own version of it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, I'm okay. Suggest that at our next meeting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. Guess. I would buy some. <laughs> so MRKH. So so um, from what I gathered before before we jumped on. Um, it's a, and you said you were born with it. So it's a congenital disorder and, uh, and in particular it affects the female reproductive system. Um, maybe give us a little bit, like uh, a little breakdown on what, what MRKH kind of entails. What does it, what does it look like? What, what does it do to the body? How does it vary from person to person? Okay. So There are actually two types of MRKH. There's type 1 and type 2. So first I'll talk about type 1, where it's characterized by an absence of uterus, cervix, and upper vagina. So basically, in layman's terms, you're born without a uterus, you're born without a cervix, and usually without a vagina or just the beginning of one. And you do have ovaries. Oh, wow. And typically, yeah. So typically... You don't find out until you're sort of in your teen years. And Mm. as girls, you're sort of waiting to get your first period. And it, you know, everybody else is getting it. Everybody else is getting it. And then when you eventually, it's been long enough. So for me at 15 or 16, I hadn't gotten my period yet. And so we went to the doctor to find out, you know, hey, what's going on? So that's the one type. And MRKH type 2. So Backing up, MRKH type 1, it affects what they call the Mullerian ducts. And so that's the part that develops into those parts of your body. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. And MRKH type 2 affects some additional organs. So you may have one kidney. You may have spinal issues. You may have some hearing issues and maybe even some heart issues. Oh, wow. So it affects more of your body internally. So, so when you, when you say that you you um you know you you hadn't had your period yet until um, when you were fifteen, and so you went to see the doctor about this, um, because when you first described type one and and so that you were born without these things, I just assumed that like oh they would know when you're born that you don't have those things. Is that is this a case of like you know at the time that you were born there wasn't like scanning processes and procedures to detect this or is like like if somebody's born today with MRKH type 1 would they know that like in utero or or shortly after the the child is born I don't think so I mean so far I don't know of anybody who's known about it in utero and then if you <laughs> find out about there are people who have found out that their baby has it but it's because some other issue has caused them to do 
like an MRI or an ultrasound. So when a newborn, you know, first comes out, I don't think the typical testing that they do on new babies mm. is to do an ultrasound and an MRI. Mm-hmm. So in, and on the outside, everything develops the same. So as a baby, you look typical mm-hmm. like any other newborn baby. Um, even as you're growing, like in your early years, and even as a teen, your what they call secondary sex characteristics develop the same. So that means you start growing breasts, you get right. armpit hair, you start getting pubic hair. So on the outside, there's no indication um, that that there would be something amiss, you know, anything mm. to investigate. So uh, unless you have like some other condition that causes you to have some other tests or something like that. So I would say a lot of people, that's how they first start finding out is they hadn't gotten their period and they end up going to the doctor. And is that like, so if you have, so you're, so um, missing the cervix, um, upper vagina, uterus, but still you develop ovaries. Are you aware with how uh, I'm assuming because the ovaries, fallopian, ovaries, fallopian tubes into uterus, kind of like the chain of that down into cervix. Um, are if the you have the, o- are, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, like what are you? Are the are the ovaries connected to anything? Is there? Is it? Is it? Are the ovaries just like a road to nowhere? Um, is there? Do you undergo egg? Like, are there eggs within the ovaries that just can't be accessed? How does that, how does that all develop with MRKH? Mm. That's a good question. So in development, the parts that the genes that trigger the development of the ovaries are separate from the genes that trigger the development of the vagina, cervix, and uterus. So it's almost like they're developing huh. and then they meet in the middle and connect. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, the ovaries develop likely not really fallopian tubes. And so they are just sort of floating. Um, And they do have eggs and they do sort of release an egg once a month. So people Mm. with MRKH actually have that part of the process, but, you know, the eggs are microscopic. So it just dissolves into your body. It doesn't really, doesn't descend down the, the fallopian tube into the uterus. Right, because basically, because when you're when you're waiting for your period or when you have a period, the the this is my understanding of it anyway. I think I'm <laughs> I think I'm pretty right about this. The 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 I'll let you know the egg, the <laughs> egg is the egg is either making its way or has made its way into the uterus and is like awaiting to be fertilized. And then there's like a uterine wall that's building in preparation for that fertilization. If the fertilization doesn't come. The uterine wall sheds. That ends up being your period. What you're experiencing is your period with um with your with blood flow. So so none of that. Obviously, you don't you don't have a uterus. So like none of that process gets triggered. The 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 egg just leaves the the ovary and just basically is like goes out into you know black space and dissolves on its own because there's nothing for it to mm. for 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 any of that other process to be triggered. Exactly right. Mm. So normally it would descend down the fallopian tube, sort of embed itself in the wall <laughs> and just wait. And then, like you said, it, it goes on. If it's not fertilized, it sheds and turns into a period. So mm. in this case, you have the hormonal changes, right? So that's what triggers the egg to release, mm. but it doesn't have any place to go. 
and it doesn't land into anything. And so without the uterus, there's no shedding. Right, right, right. So you're getting, so you are getting the hormonal, that's that's fascinating because that was the first thing that popped up in my head was that this must have um, some hormonal implication because of what's not uh, taking place. Like you're maybe missing um, a hormonal um, event um, throughout your life uh, or, or month to month based on your period. But you are, is, is there something that you're missing or that ends up being missed hormonally or because it does release from the ovaries, is that hormonal uh, or is that, or are the horm- or the kind of quote unquote normal hormonal functions still taking place? Yeah, the hormone development, because it's from the ovaries, is right on track. So mm. I myself have never had any issues with hormones, um, and I've not known anybody else that has. Huh. The interesting thing, though, is MRKH, even type 1, everybody's version is a little bit different. Totally. So yeah. some people actually have, um, I guess, variations of a uterus, maybe partially or what they call uh, unicorn uterus or, you know, there are ones that are sometimes there's two, but they're not fully developed. Mm. So that also doesn't allow, though, for the typical process, you know, right. that results in a period. I, uh, I, 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 so this is fascinating. Um, and, and I really appreciate you kind of giving us the sort of giving these, these three dudes, the, the, the breakdown of, of what, uh, like the physio- physiological sort of ramifications of, of MRKH. Um, and I, and I would love to get into your personal experience, but, but, uh, just to kind of like keep on this train just a little bit longer, uh, because I, I think there's there's so much to kind of pull from this because this is such a this is so new for us um, and probably for a lot of our listeners. Um, random question, uh, maybe not so random, but is uh, I'm I, like in, in just in hearing this and hearing about the ways that this is having an effect on the reproductive system. It one of the things that popped up in my mind was I was thinking about um, uh, people who are born with um, with intersex. Um, uh, problems. Um, is there like is there a chromosomal type uh, difference? Like, are, like do you have the same? Do you have do you have do you have typical female chromosome patterns, or does that it, does that sort of have an effect on whether or not someone has MRKH? So people who have MRKH have XX hormones, which are f- female hormones. Or cro- so chromosomes? So yeah, yeah, right, right. Chromosomes. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Interesting. And wow. So it's interesting, but you bring up a really uh, interesting topic about intersex. So intersex sort of is the umbrella for what they call differences in sexual development, DSDs. And okay. there's, it's surprising the the spectrum of those differences and the different syndromes that fall under that umbrella are huge. There oh. are so many different ones. And MRKH falls under that umbrella, but that's an incredibly charged topic in the MRKH community because not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody uh, identifies with that term and don't want anything to do with it. So I would say it's, 
a hot a topic. 50, it's yeah. a hot topic. It's a super triggering and sensitive topic. People feel very strongly about it. Right. Uh, yeah. For I, a okay. variety of reasons. Interesting. Okay. Cause I, I think, uh, and thank you for sharing that because I think that I maybe had the wrong impression of what is considered intersex. I, for some reason, I thought intersex equates to a, um, an atypical chromosome pattern. So for, for females, it would be XXY or for men, it would be, uh, well, I, I, I'm now I'm speaking out of turn cause I don't know what that would be like XYX or something. Um, but I thought that that like that is intersex, but I never knew that intersex was actually the umbrella term for, could be considered the umbrella term for like differences in reproductive system, like as a whole. So this is, that's pretty, can I ask like, what, yeah. how, where do you stand on, on that? If, if you don't mind me asking, but you, you know, and if it's too personal of a question, that's okay. But where do you stand on the idea of, of like that falling under the umbrella of intersex? I'm going to back up. Can I just back up for one yeah, second? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my understanding of that intersex being an umbrella term is what I learned when I went to a medical conference and heard doctors talking about it. So sure, sure. I'm by no means the expert in intersex, so I don't want people to come down on me for that. But you can okay. we we can say I'm the expert, and if anyone has <laughs> wants to shit on me, uh, uh, Jeremy at sickboypodcast.com. Very easy to remember. Directed send me your hate me. mail. Send it to me. That's Jeremy with an I E. <laughs> no, right. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody's ever actually asked me my opinion on intersex. You're the first person. Uh, but for me, I never identified with that term. And early on, I understand it so much better now, but early on uh, when I would read about it, it made me extremely nervous because one of the things with MRKH is you have a whole emotional journey that's going mm. side by side with your medical journey. And for me, one of the things that was an issue to get over was my sense of femininity and my, mm -hmm. you know, what does it mean to be a woman? And so when I would think about MRKH being under the intersex category, it made me extremely nervous. Mm. Now that I've, you know, grown, done so much self-development, I'm in a way different space. I don't, it doesn't trigger me that way. It doesn't make me feel any sort of a way, but for the longest time, I didn't, associate with it. I wouldn't, you know, to me, it was a non-issue. It was a topic mm. that I didn't talk about, think about. It yeah. was too triggering. I mean, I guess, you know, it, it, we, we've heard, I, I feel like, I feel like it, a lot of people have heard um, many different opinions on the, the problems with like the binary of male and female and that's that's a really broad spectrum of where people right. may sit on how they feel about that. Um, but this is a, this is a, like a good example of how that binary is can actually like you know cause a lot of sticky, icky, shitty feelings for some people, right? Um, the you know the 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 box that is female um, is you know you have a, uh, a normal vagina and you have a normal uterus and you have normal ovaries. Um, but then when you, and I'm, and I'm saying normal on purpose there um, in air quotations, if no one can, can see me, but um, if you talk to someone who has an atypical 
you know, an atypical cervix or an atypical vagina or an atypical, atypical fucking, I mean, you name, like you name it, uh, atypical labia, atypical uterus. It then doesn't, maybe in that person's brain, it doesn't necessarily check that box as female. And so now what? What does that mean? What, mm-hmm. how do I identify? Oh, fuck. I now, now, now I have all these feelings that are coming up with this. Um, right. Or you feel a certain way, but maybe literature says something different or. Yeah. And then, and then add on top of that, like the current climate when it comes to these types of discussions and where you sit politically and all the, all the fucking noise that comes with that. When in reality, maybe you're just someone who's going, I, I don't know. I just like, I've got, I've got an issue that issue is preventing me from doing this or that. And I don't know who to talk to or what to do or, you know, how to manage this. Mm-hmm. I, 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 in, in speaking about all that, I would love to uh, get your, like just your experience of, of coming to a diagnosis. I know that you said that this kind of stemmed for you around puberty. Um, kind of t- walk us through that experience. How did you find a diagnosis did it take a long time to get one? Uh, what did that look like? I was living a typical high school life, uh, pom-pom girl, going to all the activities, things like that, and just wasn't getting my period. Wasn't too concerned until around 16, where pretty much it's late not to get your period. So my mom made an appointment. We went to a gynecologist, and they did a pelvic exam. So, you know, at 16... Um, I had never been to a gynecologist before, never had to, you know, put my feet up and stir. It's a very sort of scary, invasive experience. And he did just a pelvic exam and then misdiagnosed me. What he found was that he couldn't, obviously the outside, the labia and all that looks typical. And then he wasn't able to insert the speculum, which is that device they put in to look Mm. inside your vagina. And so it wasn't able to go in. So his, he was the first doctor and he misdiagnosed it. And he thought it was just the hymen that was too thick and wasn't breaking through and not letting the period come out. Uh, So, right. So that's that sort of little film that's there. Mm -hmm. And his solution was, oh, we'll just break through the hymen. Oh, so okay. yeah, here we go. Several times a week appointments to go in and with a dilator, he would try to push through it. And Oh, uh, man. Wow. Yeah. But I thought you were going to say horseback riding. Was that just like the hor- most horrific thing? More, worse than Brian, the joke that Brian just tried to make? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> uh, it was pretty horrific. It was, you know, physically it was extremely painful. And then I really think that's emotionally where I started to disconnect. You know, I sort of would tune out and let this happen to the rest of my body and Mm. not pay attention. And so after a couple of weeks of that, nothing was happening. And I think he was confused, but not saying anything. So my mom decided to get a second opinion and we went to uh, a fertility expert um, and they did... They, di- they put me into the hospital and they did a laparoscopy, which is where they put the little needle inside and look around. So you go under anesthesia and coming out of anesthesia, uh, my mom was there, my dad was there, my mom was crying, and she's the one that told me that they had found that I didn't have a uterus. Ooh. So instantly, 
my coping mechanisms kicked in and I was more worried about my mom. I didn't want her to cry. I didn't want Mm -hmm. her to be upset. So I was like, I'll be fine. It's okay. Don't worry. Um, and in those days, the, the solution, it's a little bit different than today, but their solution is, well, we have to fix the vagina. If you don't have one, we need to get you one. So the doctor was like, well, we have two surgical options. You can have surgery A or surgery B, and we have an opening next Tuesday. Which one do you want? Um, oh, so wow, it was so fast. Just like thrust it's in. It's so yeah. fast. Yeah. And what are those? What what were those surgeries? Like what are so they trying to do? There's a couple different ones. One is, so they're vaginal reconstructive surgeries. One is called the Mackendo procedure. There's one that's called the Davidov. There's another one called the Vecchietti. And I actually think there maybe maybe one or two other kinds that they do. Um, so he was considered the expert because he had done one once before. Uh, so he's like, which one do you want? Um, wow. And so before deciding, uh, I went to then a third and a fourth opinion. So sort of mm. more examinations with more grown men sort of doing pelvic exams, coming mm. up with the same conclusion. And then this might seem minor, but it was traumatic at the time. I would sit in the doctor's office then. I went to these third and fourth opinion appointments with my father. And so to have right. a grown man right. telling me about a surgery with my dad, who was a man of very few words, talking about my vagina, which I had never talked about out loud in my whole life, was horrifying. I just want to say, like, I, I, I appreciate you laying that out there as traumatic, but and and but to 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 you know to say like it it might not seem dramatic. I I think that that I think that is. I mean, again, you gotta you gotta consider, right? Like, you, did you say you were sixteen when this was all happening? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I it's just. It is. I I have a hard time imagining what that would be like. You know, it's I, actually no, no, no. You know what? Say, I don't. You, had, you I, were I, circumcised. Yeah, yeah. At I got I got circumcised at sixteen, and I I had a very similar a similar issue. But but my where my story differs is that my parents had no idea until my mother got a phone call from the urology clinic confirming my circumcision appointment, at which I then realized, oh yeah. I don't drive yet and I need someone to take me to my circumcision. My mother was like, what the fuck? They didn't even know that I went into, uh, to get to, and then to she had to tra- get change your dress. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we don't have to go into that, but, uh, but, but that's uh, a, that's a, that's a, that's a, par- that's a, that's a, that's a, it, a, it was, a traumatic it, parallel. Yeah, yeah, it was, it like, was a traumatic parallel. You've got, you know, your mother, yeah. you're probably, you're probably less comfortable with yeah. your mother being in that situation. I would have been less comfortable with, if I had, if I had an Eastern block dad with a few words, I probably would have been more comfortable with my mother. But, <laughs> um, but I, I do want to say, uh, cause this is something that I never actually thought about and, and please, uh, bear with, uh, bear with us as, as I take us down this little rabbit hole here. Um, but I, I have never thought about the hymen really uh, in depth. I, I have an idea of what the hymen is. But uh, I, I'm very quickly realizing that that idea is very, very shallow and, and there's not a lot behind that. Um, so the hymen, do you, guys, you guys know 
uh, like of the hymen, obviously. My knowledge of the hymen doesn't go that far beyond the horseback co- riding. The, the, Jesus the, friend. I mean, that's the right to explain what uh, he's we, talking about. We are, uh, we are, we are, we are looking for a new host. Um, <laughs> but, and, but like the reason why I actually bring that up is because my knowledge is like, like, oh, you can break. I, like, I remember hearing when I was 15, like, oh, um, girls have this thing called the hymen mm-hmm. and it can it can break when you do things like horseback riding. Yeah. Like that's the yeah. extent of or my having knowledge. Sex or yeah, or that, or, or, yeah. or I mean, yeah. So, so the, so the hymen is a, and this is for all the, all the listeners who are uh, maybe in a similar boat to us who are male and, and didn't get told these things growing up. Uh, the hymen is a small thin piece of tissue at the opening of the vagina. It's formed by fragments of tissue left over from fetal development. Uh, the size, shape, and thickness of your hymen are unique to you and can change over time. Um, when you're born, your hymen is usually a ring-shaped piece of tissue that's around your vaginal opening. Other times, it covers just the bottom. Uh, it typically thins over time and eventually will break. Some people get pain. Some people do not. Some people don't even know that their hymen is broken. Sometimes it bleeds. Sometimes it doesn't. But here's a fucking fascinating thing that I just came across. I did not know the vast varying uh, shapes, looks, makeups of the hymen. Um, there are so many different variations of this thing. It's, it's pretty fascinating. So like if you look, I'm going to show the guys here. But if you, you, you see there, that's a, a quote unquote normal hymen. Um, the gray area. Yeah. And then you have like, you know, this one looks like it, it extends down towards the bottom of the vaginal opening a little further. This one is just like a, it's just a circular, it looks like a moon hymen right in the center. But then you even have like these types of variations where it's like several pieces of tissue that aren't connected like dots. Like, like clementine hymen. Then you have like uh, pomegranate seed hymen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is. It, it is kind of like that. hymen. Yeah. So it, it, it does vary quite a bit, which the reason I looked that up is because when you said, um, Rima, when you said that your first doctor misinterpreted it as a overly thick hymen tissue, um, at first I was like, what the fuck? How, like how, like, you know, it seems like this guy was just an idiot. But then when I look at this, I go, well, you know what? Maybe, you know. Uh, maybe he he didn't do a great job of like really following through with an investigation, but also I can see how one might might misdiagnose that. Um, curious about your thoughts about that about the mis- the first misdiagnosis, like you know, and and trying to go through this is that from from your experience with working with lots of people who who have MRKH through your coaching, is this a typical? experience for people who suffer from MRKH, like, um, you know, that, that experience of having a little bit of a road bump, if not a really hard time getting to the bottom of a proper diagnosis because of the nature of the, the syndrome. I can't speak to how many people have had like that misdiagnosis of the hymen, but sure, sure, sure. There are so many people that have had such a rough road of diagnosis mm. and misdiagnosis. There, I've talked with women who have been 
told a series of information. You don't have this, you don't have that, but they're not given a name. Mm. Or they were misdiagnosed with AIS, which is androgen insensitivity syndrome, or Mm. a lot of other things. And so the issue with that, if you're misdiagnosed or if you're not given a name, there is so much power in knowing what you have, knowing what the condition or situation is called, because you can do research, you can self-inform, you can find people, you can find a community and support that way. So the the challenge is, I don't I get I don't know how to say this politely, but you're run-of-the-mill gynecologist who isn't a specialist in any particular area. It's impossible for any physician to be well-versed on everything. Yeah. And there actually are specialists. There are um or a, a specialty called pediatric and adolescent gynecology. And they seem to be the most informed about these types of syndromes and things like that. Sure. And so to have them connect, so have the maybe initial gynecologist say, oh, I don't know what this is, but I can refer you here. Or uh, so there are a series of, you know, diagnosis is a process of elimination. Right. So they first, you know, the first fact is, in my case, I wasn't getting a period. The second set of information is, you know, they take a look like, okay, you're developing all the other sex characteristics. Uh, You're not an athlete, so you're not super low body fat. So you're not getting your period for those reasons. So they continue to go down this list. Uh, Nowadays, I think they would get to an MRI or an ultrasound quicker. Um. But I think it, if you're convinced your first assessment is accurate, so in his case, he probably was very sure this is what it looked like and based on the pictures that you just looked up, it it probably made sense. So, mm-hmm. what? you know, I guess thinking back, I wish we wouldn't have gone that long because it was weeks of that yeah, and it was painful. Um, but I can't fault him because it probably following, you know, deducing all the information he had, it probably made sense. Yeah, totally. When, um, when, when they saw that you didn't have a uterus and they gave the option, the couple of options for surgery was MRKH. Did it come up then or was it, or, or was it, or was it still like, okay, you don't have a uterus and we're not really sure why, but we're going to try and, but we have some surgical options from there. Um, or did MRKH, was that, did that come up or get diagnosed at that point? Or was that even further down the road? For me, it was when they did the laparoscopy and they identified I didn't have a uterus and cervix and that they knew it was MRKH or they were sure it was MRKH. And they told my mom when she was first delivering the news to me, as I was coming out of anesthesia, I don't think she went into those technical terms. She just said, you know, you don't have a uterus. Mm -hmm. Um, and then once I was, you know, later having the conversation with her and the physician, then they go over, okay, this, these are the details. This is what it actually means. And they put more of the puzzle pieces together. Mm-hmm. And what and what are those? Just, 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 just wanted to, to understand the, um, um, before you ask the question, Bryce, sorry. Um, the number, what are the numbers on MRKH? Is it, is it a, is it a, is it a, is it very rare? Is it common? Is it somewhere in between? It's one in 5,000 women. Okay. 
So yeah, not like crazy rare, but not but it's not, not crazy common. Rare, mm-hmm. right. not common by any means. Yeah. When they when they go into the details with you of of what that means, what are some of the things that that like stood out to you when they were walking you through it? It's a lot. It's it's like drinking information from a fire hose because yeah. it's really overwhelming. So suddenly you find out that yes, you have ovaries and eggs, but you can't carry your own children, so you can never be pregnant. So that's a really big shock. And then the other part that they really focused on for me was you don't have a vagina. We have to get you one. And that, be- that became the primary goal. Mm-hmm. And, or, you know, yeah. it seemed that it was the main focus. Like, how can we get this taken care of? How can we fix you as fast as we can? Right. I, I, I'm, I'm just uh, wondering, like, as a 16-year-old, um, you know, and again, I'm just, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. Like that's just, just, just like the way that my brain works. And, you know, when I, when I think about my circumcision, it was pretty straightforward. It was like, you have too much foreskin. Your foreskin doesn't come down over the head, the head of your penis. That's a problem to fix the problem. We just snip off some skin. Okay, great. Like sign me up. Let's go. Um, there wasn't a lot of thought that went into that. Right. The, what I'm hearing from you is like, it seems like that is a, there's a lot of thought that that should go into that decision, the decision to have a reproductive, you know, surgery that obviously is pretty, pretty, um, pretty grand in scope, I would say for, for a 16 year old at least. Um, so, you know, maybe from like a, like a cultural standpoint, you know, with a Lithuanian family, uh, from your own perspective, like, do you recall the conversations that you were having with your your parents? Was it was it totally like in your hands to make the choice? Was there was there you know did your did your folks have any input? Like what what did that all look like for you then to try to make that big decision of what to do next? I don't feel I had a decision. I felt like you're going to have the surgery we're going to have it soon and you can pick. And so the decision was which one. And I probably made that with my mom and just based on the doctor presented two, two approaches and we probably went with his advice. I don't Mm -hmm. remember sitting over the kitchen table and discussing like, which one seems good and investigating or doing research. It was before the days of Google Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and so there was really no way to do any sort of research. And so we really just went with the advice of the surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I had had those third and fourth opinions, they presented the same options. And right. so they're, they were at least reinforcing with what we heard from the second doctor who was suggesting that we have this surgery. So, you know, they would they would sort of show and describe what each surgery would be like. And then we just, I don't think it was much more of a decision. It was just yeah. which one and yeah. what do you think? And they told me. And so we said, okay. What this was is- the choice that you went with? I might've missed that um, earlier while I was deep nose deep in hymens. <laughs> I had the Mac and Doe procedure. And so that's where, they take a skin graft from another part of your body. So it can be like your upper thigh or like the, like back by your butt. And they 
craft a vagina over a mold and then they insert it, suture it in, and then you sort of stay in bed for about 10 days until it starts to heal. This, and this, then, yeah, eventually this, they take the mold out. This, the, this might be a dumb can question. You, can you say that one more time? Mackindo? Mackindo. Mackindo. Uh, uh, do you know how to spell that? M-C, capital I-N-D-O-E. Mac. This might be a this might be a dumb question, um, but out of out of curiosity, is the intent in reconstructing or creating a vagina for you is that is the goal so that you can have sexual intercourse? Like, is that mm-hmm. the it's the only reason? Right, the only reason. So there's no right without a uterus and without the only purpose for a vagina is really to shed the inner lining of the uterus and then eventually to have a baby come out. So without that, there's no other reason to have a reconstructed vagina other than if you want penis vagina intercourse. Mm. This might be also a dumb question to piggyback on that, but um, is like, there's, I'm guessing there's no sensation on a vagina that they constructed for you, like in, in terms of like in internally, it like, it like, does that, does it create an opportunity yeah, I, I, for you to experience any more pleasure that way? Yeah, or, or even you could like, uh, what about like, um, uh, like, like, lo- like self lubrication? Like, are, are, like, are there, are there processes that are, are that are able to take place, uh, with, with uh, like a reconstructed vagina that, that you have, uh, or, or is it, it, you know, do those things not really come with that territory? So I'll, I'll go with the first question first. So in terms of sensation, yeah, I have sensation in there because it's skin and it seems to have, um, you know, somehow I can feel what's going on in there. But uh, this is helpful for people to know that so much of stimulation and pleasure comes from the clitoris. And that what we know about the female clitoris now is that it's much bigger than just sort of the button at the, at the top, right? So you have that, you have all the nerve endings, so you can still get a lot of pleasure either mm-hmm. by yourself or with a partner with or without intercourse, right? Mm-hmm. So you can still have, you know, off the chart orgasms if you want to, um, but there is sensation on the inside. Get right on a horse, right? Like as soon as the surgery's done, Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm interested if this is, if I'm picking up on this correctly, it kind of seems like, I mean, it feels like you, in a lot of ways, felt like you really didn't have much like agency of this mm-hmm. whole situation and that it was like you were kind of along, um, kind of like, you know, being kind of like shuffled along rapidly um, like this like, with no time yeah this like yeah. conveyor belt of of things and mm-hmm. and the conversation and i was wondering the same thing that the same question that you asked Bri, like is it is the is the soul 
kind of like function of the of the surgery um, for sexual intercourse, which which like which like penetrative intercourse, you know, like I I I can I can see how I can see how you could how you could feel um, like you know, you, you gave me this surgery because you, because you really just didn't understand that there are like many options to have, you know, like sexual experiences and that you're kind of thinking of like penetrative sex as the, as like the be all end all of, of sexual intercourse. And then I can also see from, from another side of things like that, uh, maybe shallow, shallow thinking, uh, though it may be going, you know, uh, sexual intercourse is important and we want to make, and we want to, for all sorts of different reasons, social reasons, um, mostly, um, and going, we want to, I know, I know not just social, but for this, but, but, but to be able to connection in in a lot of different ways and and we want to be able to give you, um, we want to be able to like do a reconstructive surgery so that you can have that experience. Like, like I'm getting the sense that you're feeling like you, I'm not even going to say I'm getting the sense. What would you have done in this scenario where nobody is, nobody is prodding you along, your family mm. isn't involved. And again, obviously this is hindsight 2020. The doctors are much more considerate. They're asking you when you'd like to do the surgery, mm. if you'd like to do the surgery and it's entirely in your hands. You know, what does you at this age um, now think about going through that, that circumstance again? I love that question. It's really insightful. So I did feel like I was just being moved along and that the reason why, you know, just we need to fix you. Uh, Now, when I think back, had I been given the option of when to have surgery or in today's day and age, they also promote dilation first. And so that's Mm. a non-surgical method. Mm -hmm. But in my case, I would have chosen to have surgery because my thinking at the time was I wasn't really dating. I wasn't sexually active yet. Um, I didn't have a boyfriend, but I thought if I were to have a boyfriend and it would get to that point in the relationship, I wanted to be ready. I wanted my body to be ready. And I knew I was heterosexual. So that eventually would be what I, the kind of sex that I would be having. Um, There are women who who wait now and decide to have the surgery once they find the partner that they're with. For Mm. me, my choice would have been to have the surgery. So in the event or when I found a partner that I didn't have to then wait and decide what to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mm. it was the right decision for me, but it did feel a little bit forced because Mm. of all those things that you mentioned. Yeah. What Um, about, um, what about, uh, uh, Pregnancy and and childbirth. I mean, obviously, without a, a uterus or or an, uh, you know a, an underdeveloped uterus, um, I would I would guess that it's not possible for you to uh, to have a baby. Um, but but with the with your not ovary, possible to carry a baby. Yeah, sorry, carry a baby. But with 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 ovaries that that are functioning, um, that that seems obviously like a, a choice that you could. You know, you could take those ovaries and, and put those to use. So, like, what does pregnancy look like for people with MRKH? What are the what are the um, the options that that are kind of at people's disposal when they get to that point in their life? There are some different options. So, of course, you can adopt or you can have foster children. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at the biological route, you 
typically do have functioning ovaries with eggs. So people can harvest their eggs and either freeze them and wait until the right time. Um, so one option is to have a baby through with a gestational carrier. So with your own eggs fertilized with, if you have a male partner, their sperm and a gestational carrier can have your baby. So that's amazing in terms of technology and the ability to do that. And the other thing is now there actually are successful uterine transplants. Oh, wow. Wow. And so Holy shit. That's I crazy. think there are now about 70 babies that have been born successfully through <laughs> successful uterine transplant. So that wow. wasn't, you know, that wasn't an option when I was that age, but uh, technology has come around and yeah, you can, you can actually get a uterus transplanted and successfully carry a baby. Mm. That is absolutely fascinating. I had a, I had a, Love I had a daughter th- via IVF with my wife and like, there was no, like uh, for my wife, there was no, um, and for me, uh, there was no outright obvious reason why we were not, um, why we were not getting pregnant on our own. And, and, and so like, it's, having gone through that situation and and knowing like all of the possible reasons why it might not be working and and all of the like it seems like on the on the female side there's on the male side there's like a couple of things that could be happening on the female side it seems like there's just like an ocean of things that could be happening and it's really hard to tell what's what and what what variable is causing what outcome um but to know that <laughs> you can take a uterus and put it in somebody and make everything connect in a way that allows that uterus to function in a way that carries a bit like that is totally out of this world. Mm -hmm. Mind blowing. I cannot Mm -hmm. believe that that's that word that we're there. Rima, (laughs) I'm, I'm really curious, um, for you, like, how do you think being diagnosed with MRKH, uh, affected your perspective on pregnancy and childbirth? Mm. I think it affected my perspective on everything, my entire life from the moment I found out. So in terms of pregnancy and childbirth, I had always wanted to be pregnant as a kid. And I never really, I never really had a vision of actually having kids or a family, uh, but I had wanted to be pregnant And I think for me, finding out that I wasn't going to be able to do that, part of my coping mechanism was to instantly put all that off to the side and think this is for other people. And so I really thought all these sort of milestone moments in life that everybody, and I'm using air quotes, experiences were not meant for me. And so I think emotionally, I distanced myself from that idea. So I dated people that either weren't into kids. uh, I dated people that didn't want kids, Mm. or I dated people that I knew weren't long-term potential for me. So I wouldn't even run the risk of, this is of course, in hindsight, run the risk of being rejected for not being able to do that. Mm. And so it really, um, it really impacted just even my social choices and my dating choices. Mm-hmm. 
And you mentioned you, you mentioned like kind of the emotional uh, earlier in the conversation, like the emotional tolls and feelings of uh, femininity mm-hmm. or, or maybe an inadequacy in femininity. Uh, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth with that word, but um, like you know, some I think people 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 have different definitions of what it is and, and as they should different definitions of what it means to be a woman or a man, whatever. Um, but I think, I, I, I think one of like, one of the common ones is that being able to carry a child has a, is a, plays a big role in feeling like, like feeling womanhood. Mm -hmm. And if somebody feels like that, that's great. Um, but then at the same time, when you feel like that and you can't, then obviously that has a a big negative, uh, implications. Like, was that something that at 16, like, how did you grapple that with that at 16? I mean, like being 16 and, and go, coming up with this, like that, you know, like you said, you, you knew you wanted, you, you thought that you wanted to be pregnant, but like, that's a, that's a big, that's a big thing uh, that a lot of people don't really fully wrap their head around, like what they want or how they want to do it and, or if they want to do it at all until they're older in life, um, older than 16, I should say. Like how did how how did how did that affect you emotionally and your feelings around your femininity when you were a kid or a kid a teenager? It happened in stages, I think, the way it impacted me. So initially, um, it, it it felt like I couldn't participate in a lot of the girl type conversations about your period and cramps and things like that. Um, I felt like I was always carrying a secret. So I didn't really, I was always watching what I said. So this would never come up. Mm. So it really put a distance or at least an emotional distance. I had great friends, but I felt like there was always this thing I had to protect, this secret that I had to protect. Um, I was a little bit of a late bloomer when it comes to dating. And so I think that's when I started to question, well, maybe I am not feminine enough. And the doctors reassured me that, you know, you've got all these hormones on the outside. You know, I was typical, I should say. And, but I didn't have a reason for that. And so I felt like it became the reason why things didn't happen. Or, um, and I even remember, so my initial surgeon, I think he was, progressive enough to realize that I might have to deal with things emotionally. So his solution was to make an appointment for me with a world-renowned sex therapist. So at 16, he sat me down with a sex therapist and, but it was a bizarre experience. You know, first she was, it was at a teaching hospital. So she had somebody in there observing the session. And her first question was, you know, how do you feel about um, you know, having MRKH and I said, or not being able to have kids even. And I said, Oh, I'm sure it'll bother me one day, but you know, right now I'm too young. And I think that's how I dealt with a lot of things. Like one day it'll bother me. And so I just kept pushing things like that away. Like it doesn't apply to me right now. Mm -hmm. How have, how, how has I gone that same sort of, um, in the same sort of lane as how it made you feel then and how that sort of played out throughout your life. Um, and the, the, 
the question or the feeling of femininity and inadequacy or, you know, whether you're like, I don't know, whether it's like living up to, uh, you know, like social standards of what it means to be a, a woman or is how has, has the last several years and how society has started to like shift the way that we sort of look at masculinity or femininity or like the definitions that we have like historically surrounded those things. Um, and now how that is starting to like really drastically shift. Has that, has that, um, has that played into, or has, has that played into how you feel or, you know, maybe the better way to ask that question is like how you might have felt if that had been the environment then. Maybe that's too big. Maybe that's too, too, too broad of a question. (laughs) No, no, I understand what you're asking. So I do think today's environment, the fact that we're talking about so many things, the fact that there's conversations about sexuality and gender and people being able to voice their feelings and their perspective, I think that makes a huge difference for people. And and I think in those conversations, people's differences come up and we start to realize that everybody has something, right? It Some are bigger than others, but so I think that conversation is so helpful and so healing and really breaks down a lot of barriers. I think part of the emotional toll is that because this affects such a private part of your body, there is no conversation about it, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's talking about vaginas and vulvas and uteruses, uh, maybe period cramps, right? So mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. open conversation, I think, is incredibly helpful. And I think what I see with my younger coaching clients is that they are able to maybe talk to their friends a little bit sooner, a little bit more openly, but there still is that internalized, am I good enough? The self-worth, the, you know, what if I get rejected for not being able to carry a child? There's still a lot of, so that part hasn't gone away. And I still see that with, you know, teens and young women today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've come a really, even in the last decade, like we've come so far in the, in the, this, well, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I'm going to stop myself. We're in, a, we're in a bit of a bubble. I, I'm going to stop myself there because because what I was about to say um, does not apply depending on where you live and yeah. and and I don't mean like country wise. I mean even down to like you know the state or the province or the town. Um, but but I do feel, regardless, having said that, I do feel like the needle has moved pretty pretty far, even in the last decade in in around the topic of, of, you know, um, uh, sexual education, uh, you know, education around our anatomy, uh, education surrounding differences in bodies and, and the, 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 the very broad spectrum that, that, that encapsulates. Um, but, but even having said that there, we're, we're still in a, in a, in a pretty grim place when it comes to, uh, and in particular, female health, right? Like female health has just kind of been, it's been put on the back burner. It always has been put on the back burner. Uh, and that that boils down to, you know, a fucking ton of different factors. But 
Um, I think one of the places where it really needs to be, like we really need to see a big shift is female health from the perspective of research, which still, it's just not at the forefront um, for for a bunch of, you know, seemingly bullshit reasons, I, I think, but um, I'm also an idiot, so. Uh, no, but it's bullshit reasons historically, right? Yes, so right, right. It starts so far back, and I totally agree with you that, uh, feminine health is so far behind where men's health is. And even like you said, with research or even there's so much stigma attached to it. And a lot of how we think culturally is based on historical crazy ideas that came up. Like when we were talking about the hymen and the whole theory that, oh, you're remember when you would hear about the days where with royalty, they had to prove that the woman was still yeah. a virgin. Right. Like that's all manufactured truth. Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot about cultural influence that impacts how we think. Mm-hmm. And I, I think back to, do you remember that old movie, Aaron Brockovich with Julia yeah. Roberts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there was a town where they had a lot of issues and with cancer and they had to, this one woman had so many surgeries and this one line sticks out to me where she said, you know, I've had, you know, my ovaries removed. I've had my uh, uterus removed. She's had a mastectomy. And she said, how many body parts can you remove and still be considered a woman? Mm. And so there's this attachment to identity with our body parts. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's unfortunate. And I, I think it's important for that to come around. And so that's partly what I try to help people with because thankfully I came from a family that my mom's always believed in therapy and, you know, mental health and things like that. So there was no stigma in my family, but my personal sort of mental and emotional journey to get to a good place and feel great about myself took a lot of dedication and like consistent effort. And I think with these changing conversations, uh, at least it opens the door for that, but I still think we have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your your work as as a coach, someone who's you know trying to help people who are struggling with this type of diagnosis. Like, you know, how did that start for you? And and is that is that you know is that basically the thing the thing that you're you you want to like dedicate you know your life to um, uh, to you know to I guess. I guess, A, to make a living, but also to like make meaning of, of your time here? That is the thing that I feel most passionate about. I came from, you know, I have a career in adult learning. I was a corporate trainer. And so I've been developing training and courses for people forever and became a coach in the process. Mm. And so I've been working in the corporate world. And when I had finished getting certified as a coach, uh, you know, I was able to apply it in the corporate world, but in conversation with a really close friend of mine, she said, what's been the thing that's impacted you most in your entire life? And instantly I thought, well, MRKH has, it's impacted every aspect of my life. Um, and in that moment, I actually, we were sitting on a beach and a man had walked by and he had what looked to be like burn scars across his whole body. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, he's so lucky. His scars are on the outside. He doesn't have to hide them. Hmm. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, 
that's how it felt. Like I felt like the secret that I had been carrying mm. was had affected every part of me, but I was hiding it for so long. And I thought it doesn't have to be that way. So in that moment, I thought, we don't need another corporate trainer in the world to make another organization more millions of dollars. There's plenty of us that my skills, my experience, and then my personal journey would be so much better served if I could even help one girl going through MRKH have a smoother more gentle journey to find acceptance, Mm. then it would make it all worthwhile. So um, that's really how it was born. And I think I was able to learn these skills because, like I said, I had a family that believed in therapy. Um, My most impactful (coughs) therapist was somebody who was also a coach and had those skills. And I really believe that in coaching, that it takes you from venting, like, oh my gosh, I have this and this is so hard to, okay, now what? How, how do I handle this next life event? How do I get through the dating scene? When do I bring up that I have, do I bring it up on the first date? Mm. Do I bring it up a couple months in and then it's not fair, you've fallen in love with me and now you're telling me this? Mm-hmm. How do you go to baby showers and not have a meltdown? Mm. So I think that all these, these are just skills and tools um, that are, we can learn and teach each other. And so I, I really did this major shift to dedicate my life towards that. So I work now really hard to either do one-on-one coaching mm-hmm. or I run a group membership where we meet every single week at two different times. And I have people from all over the world that dial in and we work as a group to hear each other's stories and to, because there's so much healing and just witnessing somebody's story. Mm -hmm. And then we practice these different skills and connect and really have this safe space where people can sort of open up to that vulnerable part of them and they build and get this confidence and strength then to take it beyond the group membership. So mm. it's really exciting. I've seen it, so much growth in the people that come and come regularly. Yeah. Um, it's called uh, Sumavi, correct? That's the pronunciation. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Sumavi coaching. Um, very cool. I love that. I mean, you know, it's, it's and, and also really meaningful to considering that this is something that you've struggled with and to be able to take that thing and, and turn it into something that is giving back and like doing good, um, which not only is helping these people, but I'm sure that it also, you know, has played a a pretty big role in, in offering you a lot of insight into the things that you struggled with in retrospect and and offering you a lot of healing. Um, so I, I love that. Um, I, I'm really curious, but I know that we're getting close to time. And, um, before we wrap up, uh, as someone who, who spent a lot of time, you know, hiding or, or not sharing the fact that they, uh, we're dealing with M- MRKH. Um, do you have any s- standout or memorable experiences, for better or for, for worse, of when you actually told somebody about what you were dealing with and how they reacted to it? So I've had a lot of different reactions. Uh, some stand out because it just shows people's lack of information where I actually told a friend of mine that I had known for quite some time, not super close, but I told her and she said, how do you live? How, how can you live without a vagina? 
And I thought, well, <laughs> the same way you live with Lyme. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I didn't tell you I don't have lungs. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. So there are reactions like that. Yeah. Uh, and the other side of the spectrum would be, you know, I told a friend and she's like, hmm, so what's the hard part? Mm-hmm. And I yeah. thought, okay, well, maybe that's a conversation for another day. Mm-hmm. Um, but my most memorable experience was actually telling uh, somebody that I was dating, not dating. I would call it more like a situationship. I'm not quite sure <laughs> had reached relationship status, but um, somebody that I was close to, we had been physical. And so I really thought to myself, I, you know, I just need to practice being vulnerable and Ooh. just live through it. And so I sat there and in the past, I had only ever told half the story. I had, on, I had been brave enough to tell men that I dated that I didn't have a uterus, but I never told them about the fact that I had a reconstructive vagina because mm. I, I was afraid of what the reaction would be. And so with this person, I just told him the whole story and was crying, was really scared. But I had told myself beforehand that, you know, I need to get stronger and better at being able to do this and just realize that I can get to the other side and be okay. And the response was amazing. Um, he was so compassionate. So like, thank you so much for sharing that with me. That must have been so hard. And he just said the reception was just amazing. Mm. And I realized that we do have to be willing to be scared and be vulnerable to get to those connections Mm. because the other way of protecting yourself by not opening up doesn't just does more harm. It does more harm. It isolates you. And that's a lot of what can happen is you Mm. isolate yourself in a lot of different ways. So that was still to this day, my most meaningful experience. And Mm. he ended up sharing something that he had been really self-conscious about that I had never noticed. Mm. Right. So what I learned is that sometimes what's such a big deal to us is not a big deal to other people. It doesn't have to be. And I, So I really came to the conclusion that this thing that I've been carrying like a secret, it's just private. It doesn't have to be this horrible secret. It's just not meant for everybody's ears. Yeah. And so I'm much better at determining, you know, who do I trust? Who, when is it relevant to share? Yeah. And when I do share, it's not like, oh my God, I hope you don't find out. But it's just a part of building a further connection with the yeah. person to share a part that's been huge in my life. So that's to this day, my favorite yeah. experience. It's, it's kind of like your vagina, you know, it's yeah. private. Sometimes there's a it's time to share everybody. it. Sometimes it's not a time to share it. You know, it's not for everyone's eyes. Exactly. Uh, I, uh, I, we have one last question. Uh, it's a two-parter. What would you say is the biggest thing that MRKH has taken away from you? Now, in retrospect, I would say nothing. I would say I've gained so much from it. I've gained personal growth. I've gained insight. I've gained a sense of self from it. So sure, I couldn't carry a biological child. um, But if I had trusted myself and my worth earlier, 
I think I would have, you know, come to other decisions in my life. So mm. really, um, when I think about a life without MRKH, I think there would have been something else for me to, that would have challenged me to get through. And so this is what the universe brought in my direction. And um, the best I can do is uh, learn from it and get stronger by it. So that would be what I say. Well, you answered the second part in that answer. So thank you for that. Um, Rima, this has been a, a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for being willing to sit down with three men who, uh, you know, who don't have a super vast understanding of female anatomy uh, compared to uh, someone who has the anatomy. And, uh, and, uh, and thanks for, you know, just thanks for, for doing what you do. Uh, this, is, this has been a really lovely conversation. How can people find you and, uh, and stay, up to work, stay up to date with the work that you do? They can find me on my website, which is sumavi.com. And on Instagram, sumavi underscore trusted circle. And I post about events. You know, if I have a free webinar coming up or a retreat or different coaching opportunities. So always reach out. It's, you don't have to go through this alone. There are, there is support and it, it can get better. So, and thanks to the three of you for your insightful questions. I'm amazed. Well, thank you. Oh, well, thank it's, you. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's all our mothers. It all comes from our, our great moms. Um, uh, uh, Kyla, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Kyla. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And and well, Brian, and my mom and, uh, yeah, and Maddie. Yeah. There you go, Maddie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll say here too because if I don't, I'm going to be in trouble. So uh, uh, thank you, Rima. This has been a real treat. Uh, thank you so much for for sharing some of your time with us today. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.